1: so start looking in the right place with LinkedIn. You can hire professionals like a professional post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
2: Hey everyone. My name is Emily Friedlander and you're listening to episode 13 of the thump podcast. Every week, we bring together a panel of Thump editors to discuss the people and stories shaping contemporary electronic music and nightlife. Today, we'll be discussing our recent trip to Durham, North Carolina for MoogFest. And seeing as it's festival season, we'll also be talking about the latest installment of our ongoing series on harm reduction. This time, it was about how to help a friend through a bad trip. We'll also be discussing some findings from a very serious scientific study we conducted exploring the art of the Song of the Summer, and why Calvin Harris specifically seems to be behind so many of them. Finally, we'll dive into a little-told story about Studio 54's rocky first month in business, according to DJ Nicky Ciano. Opening night, it turns out, was about... 40 years ago, April 26, 1977, which brings us to the 40th anniversary of Studio 54. Do You all want to introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Michelle, I'm the features editor.
1: I'm Ezra, I'm the associate editor. I'm Colin Joyce, the
3: managing editor.
2: And I'm Emily Friedlander, editor in chief. What have you guys been listening to? Well, I just got back from a little vacation in Havana, so
0: I was listening to a lot of amazing salsa and reggaeton and song on the streets, which was really just refreshing to get away from the 4-4 for a little bit. Um, And for the last 24 hours, I've pretty much been listening to a lot of Ariana Grande in light of the horrible tragedy that happened in Manchester, and really just feeling my heart go out to all of the victims and their families, as well as her, I think, that we often don't think about the weight that these tragedies place on the celebrities at the heart of it and i'm sure that she just feels completely devastated that some of her child like some of her fans who were literally children were victims in this attack so yeah
3: yeah she tweeted something that just started broken it's so sad i've had this like really weird impulse to
1: listen to exclusively vocal music like with no instruments just voices i've listened to a lot of like 90s R&B acapellas, because a lot of the time like these R&B groups from the 90s would release acapella versions of their big hits. One in particular that's amazing is that acapella of Jagged Edge has walked out of heaven, that it's been on repeat for the last
3: few days. Do you know why they released acapella versions? Was it for DJ mixing specifically, or...? Oh, I don't know actually, that's a good question. Yeah, I, I should look into that. There has to be a story to be told there Yeah, for some reason. I have been listening to a new album from Jalen, the Gary, Indiana-based producer who's sort of been a cause celebre among the footwork community and then the wider avant-garde electronic community over the last few years. Her new album is called Black Origami, and it came out last week on Planet Mew, and it's definitely like the best thing she's ever put out. It's a really strange record and calls into question for me the idea that she's a footwork producer at all. There's this strange detail in the spin profile of her that came out where it says she produces all of her tracks linearly, meaning she starts with note one and that becomes note one of the song. And she goes through the whole thing as if it were producing it like beat by beat, which seems so counterintuitive and strange, but that m- makes sense that her music is also counterintuitive and strange. Footwork is like a body music. Like It developed alongside a style of dance, and I think you would be hard-pressed to find any way to dance to Jalen's music.
2: Yeah, we actually have our own profile coming out this week um, of Jalen, and what's interesting about it was it really delves into her sort of proficiency with math and her attraction to physics and things like that. She actually goes and visits her high school math teacher and revisits the quadratic formula or like her teacher has her write it down on the board. There's also a really cool metaphor that I like where
0: like as part of the story, the writer goes on a fireworks shopping fantasy like excursion together and they shoot fireworks in her backyard and there's this whole metaphor about her taking off as an artist. But I think that that fireworks quality also really applies to her music and that it's really aggressive but also has this really strange, like, weightless, airy feeling. So, yeah, I don't know. I just felt like that was a really cool metaphor that worked across different modes when it comes to her.
2: Yeah, it's kind of like she takes the gridded mathematical precision of footwork and masters that, but then sort of exploded that. Um, Like, she explodes the grid of it. And then her music seems to sort of just, like, float in this, like,
0: nebulous, airy, weightless, alien... Space
3: and there's so many cool sounds on the record too. I think that that's what separates this one from the last few for me, is that she really like Mm -hmm. pays a lot of attention to things that just like straight up haven't been done in her chosen genre before. Like there's the one track um, that starts with like a drum line sort of beat that sort of gets slivered and chopped up into a weird footwork thing, and then there's one percent, which is this weird like dial tone sound mm. that she turns into like a classic dubstep drop in, wow. the, in the middle of the track. It's it's like these are sounds that you've heard before but I feel like nobody's really folded them into what you would consider footwork. It reminds me a lot and she's playing with him in New York next month, but it reminds me a lot of what Foodman does with footwork where he keeps the drum programming that's like really crazy and all over the place, but he brings in totally different sounds, like things that you've never heard before and are almost like funny. Like, like Jay- I don't think Jalen's songs are funny, but there's a glee to mm. the way that she produces. Gary is, is like an old manufacturing steel town and people like to connect that to her work calling it like industrial and stuff but especially in this album I hear so much color and happiness absolutely she even
0: recorded some stuff in Bangalore India with one of her collaborators and I think she's working on another collaboration with the Royal Ballet you know she just sort of like explodes any sort of pigeonholy box that people try to put her in as a so-called quote footwork artist
2: including like being someone who is necessarily a representative of Gary which I think A lot of coverage of her has just like made her like you know, oh, it's all about being from this really depressed, impoverished city. And I think that if there's anything we can say about her, it's that she's not like a symbol of anyone.
0: I mean, yeah, she's working on a Rick Owens soundtrack, so (laughs) it's about as avant-garde and as far from Gary as you can get.
2: What I've been listening to, I mean, I've been listening to a lot of different things because I just came back from Moogfest. But one album I've listened to a lot is Omar Suleiman's recent work on Mad Decent. It's his Mad Decent debut, which is called To Syria With Love. Omar Suleiman is a singer who is from Al Jazeera in Syria and has been living in exile for the last six or so years in Turkey. I first interviewed him several years ago when he was coming back from South by Southwest and we actually talked about how hard it was for him to get from Turkey, where he lives, to the United States. It involved driving through multiple countries, including Syria, basically going past these like war checkpoints and dodging death at every turn. It was completely insane. Omar doesn't like to talk about Syria from a political perspective that much, but he does have a very strong nostalgia for the country that's evident in his music. And this is the first album where he really is directly talking about that longing to be home or longing for the country that he grew up in. The piece that I did with him recently was kind of interesting. It was about the specific genre of Syrian music that Omar Suleiman sings in or draws inspiration from. It's called shabi, the shabi style of music. There are shabi in many countries in the Arab world, but I think you can't really equate them with each other. But shabi means popular music, but popular not in the sense of pop music, like in the Western sense, but popular in terms of this is what the people listen to, and it's specifically about music that people who live in the rural parts of the country listen to. Apparently, people who live in the cosmopolitan urban parts of Syria think this music is, quote, trash music. And they're basically sung poetry songs with a variety of like regional local instruments to accompany them, traditionally. Omar Suleiman and a lot of pop singers, however, who sing Siri and Shabi across the Arab world now use keyboards, so something that makes Omar very interesting and an artist that could cross over to Mad is the fact that he's working in the electronic music realm while singing this sort of traditional rural folk music. A lot of people just don't have much context about what he does because the music industry works very differently there, and a lot of it is not actually online. The system of, like, ownership and copyright is different, so even just getting him to do this piece where he talked about his favorite shabby singers was, like, very difficult. It was hard to even find the music on the internet. But I saw him play at Moguefest last week, and it was really awesome. A lot of the songs are kind of like wedding songs or celebration songs, and it was kind of weird and strange to see him singing this music that was so specific knowing the background behind it for this crowd of Moogfest listeners and they still got up and danced and I guess music is universal but I think that was one of the interesting like rare experiences that one could have at a festival like Moogfest Colin How would you say that MoogFest is different from other festivals you've been to?
3: Well, I'm not a seasoned festival goer in the traditional sense, but it seems like there's a lot of attention from this festival given to the stuff around the music in addition to the music itself. Obviously, there's a lot of great performers. This year was headlined by Animal Collective and Flying Lotus. But up and down the bill, they had all of the performers also giving talks about things that related to their work. Like I saw Animal Collective talk to... Weirdly, Hannibal Burris and this guy, Syrinx, who's a Canadian musician from 40 years ago, who played Moogfest. And I think that a lot of festivals like pay lip service to the idea of like giving talks and stuff, but it seems baked into what Moogfest is doing. They're like very invested in, in the future of music and the future of creativity. And they show that through those talks and workshops and stuff like that. I don't know. Did did you go to any of those things, Emily?
2: It's always hard for me to experience music festivals because I'm always like working during them. I myself participated in a workshop that was with Frankie Hutchinson from Disc Woman and it was about how to create spaces and provide support to marginalized voices in dance music and it was really cool because it was in sort of a classroom setting it felt like being back in college and there was just a small group of really passionate people from different cities most of them not new york who wanted to have this sort of like master class with frankie and it was just really intimate it actually wasn't filmed i kind of wish it was filmed but it's also cool that it wasn't filmed because it was just really special and one of a kind and didn't it felt like a real break from the like chaotic very instagram friendly <laughs> nature of most festivals it was just it felt like it was like for the sake of the issue a serious discussion about the issue
0: what sort of advice would you give to someone who wants to work with a brand but wants to avoid a pepsi moment
2: i think she just said that she really plays everything by feel, and the different opportunities that come her way have to feel really right. She's very, very selective about it. She'll never put her or the other people from Discwoman in a position where they feel like they have to compromise anything. Obviously, they have to feel like they're getting something back from it, and it's not just being used, because there's often a feeling of, you know, I'm offering my face and being Mm. used buy this larger brand. Yeah, I
0: feel like it always comes down to people, like who you're working with and their intentions. And you think of brands as these big faceless entities, but like they are really made out of people. And if the people are bad, then it's not going to be an experience and vice versa.
2: Yeah. And she also did say that it often comes down to the people that she's working with mm-hmm. and even if you have like a general distrust of corporations often there will be really awesome people who do work at those corporations
3: mm-hmm. so there were a lot of those like really small like classroom type discussions like throughout the festival i know that i don't think this one ended up happening but Pharmacon was supposed to be giving a masterclass on contact microphones and said, like <laughs> what other festival is is getting that granular so with cool. with the knowledge that they're spreading one thing i will say though is that all of those really really small ones were almost impossible to to get into even like a month in advance they were pretty fully booked up yeah. um, so if you have intentions of doing that for Moogfest 2018 like you've really got to be on it to like get into those because I mean they're limited so that they can be special and yeah I think that there's like some privilege given to people that pay VIP ticket things to get into those things but I think that it's deliberately small and deliberately intimate.
0: Speaking of paying for things, you bought your first Modes Synthesizer.
3: (laughs) I did. I guess I fell for the marketing um, (laughs) after seeing people play them all weekend. And obviously there's a really huge brand presence. It's in the name of the festival. And even at... All the talks that were at like, the main theater, they had like just Moog synth sitting in front of every person oh, that was talking. Good but, branding. Yeah, no, I ended up spending some money on the Sunday morning before I left buying a semi-modular Moog synthesizer, and I'm very excited to dig How into How
0: much it. did it cost? Just curious.
3: This is an advertisement for Moog now. <laughs> um, uh, it, it generally costs $600, but at the store that they had on site there, that almost everything was discounted. So I paid like 400 something for it, I think. So that felt good. That's a, a feature that I wasn't anticipating, because it was already something I was thinking about getting. But I guess, subliminally seeing people plug patch cables into things all weekend made me want to do it, too.
2: At the modular Moog marketplace, yeah. you could just try all kinds of stuff out. I have another friend who bought his first synth because he was inspired by what he saw and also just watching everybody play with all of the gadgets and machines and theremins and stuff.
3: It's a really immediate experience playing with a synthesizer versus other instruments. Is like even if you don't know what you're doing you can still get a sound out of it like whether that's like a pleasant sound or not like you can just roll into that marketplace and either hit a key or turn a knob and like something's going to come out of it and that's not the same as like picking up a violin for the first time or a saxophone you know
2: definitely but yeah in general I just think Moakfest is probably my favorite festival that I've been to recently. It's obviously very different from Movement where you guys Michelle and Ezra are going next week, which is a whole other thing entirely and very cool too, but more of like a party all night kind of thing. Bogue fest is small and kind of educational, not too chaotic. You're not going to be partying all night, but you're going to get a lot out of each moment, which I think is very cool. Definitely. Speaking of festivals, we are already several weeks into festival season, and from now through the end of the summer, we'll be continuing to roll out articles from our ongoing series on harm reduction, specifically drug-related harm reduction at music festivals, and we recently published our most recent installment which Michelle was helming, which was about how to help a friend through a bad trip. I know that from conversations I've had with harm reduction groups, one very important aspect of keeping people safe is actually educating people peer to peer, like educating people so that they know what to do, what advice to give to somebody else when they are having a bad drug experience. Right. And I think
0: that a lot of drug culture is dependent on word of mouth and friends telling friends what to do. But the problem with that is that there's often a lot of myths and misconceptions that end up floating around. And what was really cool when this reporter, David Bienenstock, decided to pitch a story was that he wanted to talk to the director of the Zendo Project, which offers psychedelic first aid and is an offshoot of MAPS, which is a psychedelic research organization. So they're like really legit, basically, and they know their shit. And they basically have a couple steps that you can take that have been proven through their experiences offering psychedelic first aid at music festivals like Burning Man and Lightning in a Bottle. And these are things that actually work. So I thought that was cool to have advice based on a reputable organization rather than like what the homie who's done acid too many times tells you.
3: Or like the Arrowhead forums or something right. like that. Right, which is
0: not to <laughs> knock those because I think that those have a really valuable purpose too in light of like the war on drugs not giving us enough research information. You do have to depend on that. But um, moving on to the tips themselves, I think – the one strain that sort of connected all of them is not to talk down to the person or approach them from like a place of anxiety or fear, but rather, like you don't even call it a bad trip is what they is what they advise. Call it, you know, a difficult trip because if you say bad, it places a value judgment that, immediately freaks people out because they're like, I'm having a bad trip. Whereas if you say difficult, it's more just like an experience that might be difficult to get through, but it might, you know, end up being rewarding at the end. So you want to talk them through the experience and instead of talking them down, you want to move them to a safe, comfortable space away from like lights and music that can be really disorienting. Don't forget to take care of yourself is one of the really interesting points, like especially if you're on psychedelics too, which is something that I think people usually find themselves like situations that people find themselves in when you are also tripping and you need to take care of someone. So remember to follow these steps for yourself as well and get help if you need it. Like if someone is having a really bad mental breakdown or a medical emergency, if you just don't feel like you're capable of doing it, like you should get help. And lastly, you know, don't forget to integrate them back into society because I think a lot of people where the difficulty comes from is going from that like crazy psychedelic space back into reality and not having, like, someone there to provide comfort and support as they reintegrate. So, um, yeah, those were sort of the tips that the director of the Zendo Project gave to our reporter. And they're all sort of for this idea of psychedelic first aid, which is my new favorite thing.
3: Have any of you ever been in a position where you're trip-sitting for someone, whether it goes well or not? It's something that happened to me a few times in college where... I was just hanging around the dorms and people took a bunch of mushrooms and then I was the only person not on mushrooms there. And you feel this, uh, I think uh, what you're saying about taking care of yourself, you feel this like responsibility to like provide something for people. And it's important to remind yourself, I think, that they're along for the ride.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I've been a trip sitter and acid Sherpa many (laughs) times. And I think what is what I what I've found is that your energy is so influential in other people's when people are tripping like they're super, super raw and vulnerable to other people's energies and frequencies. So if you maintain a really calming, loving presence, and they're sort of freaking out, you can sort of like persuade them or influence them subliminally just through your sort of like presence and your stillness.
2: That makes sense. I think it's also important to keep in mind, not to sound like the mom here, but if somebody is really having a hard time and you are out at a music event, especially a festival, do not be afraid to go to the medical tent and seek professional help. The advice that we publish on our site isn't necessarily the same thing that a doctor would, it's not official medical advice. These are strategies that harm reduction groups have um, learned can be effective, but if somebody is really not having a good time going to the medical services is a top priority and an important message of our harm reduction series, do not be afraid to go to paramedics or the medical tent because they will take care of you and you will be safe. So this is kind of a hard left transition, but since we're on the topic of summer fun, I was wondering, Ezra, if you could tell us a little bit about our recent analysis, very scientific analysis, of Songs of the Summer.
1: Yeah, so our writer Rachel Krause took a look at this trend that has come about recently of declaring a song of the summer that people all agree was the song that defined their experience, whether it was at a festival or on the radio or what have you. She focused on the songs of Calvin Harris, who has had several songs that have been kind of unofficial songs of the summer over the last five years. And she came up with five categories that define what enables a song of the summer to reach that category. First of all, for the most part, almost all the major songs of the summer over the last decade have had a female vocalist. Rihanna is a great example. And Calvin Harris has partnered with Rihanna on several tracks, and they've almost all been huge number one hits that have dominated the summer. And you're also gonna want sing-along lyrics. You don't wanna make the chorus any more complicated than it has to be. You want like simple words that don't stray too far from love, the dance floor, Ideas that are going to work for a lot of people in a universal context. A lot of the time, like, these aren't exactly straight-up house songs or techno, but you want kind of like a beat that's pretty close to a 4-4 beat or something that's going to, like, really work in a dance context. Like, these aren't really ballads. These aren't really, like, rap songs. A lot of the time, they're, like, kind of come from an EDM context, especially where Calvin Harris is concerned, of course. She also pointed out that you want really familiar... Like, you want these really familiar ideas to repeat throughout these songs. A big way to do that is with, like, the quote-unquote millennial whoop, which is this um, phrase that you find in a lot of these songs that's just sort of, like, the A, O, these these things that kind of everybody knows what that means. It means, like, throw your hands up and have a good time. Lumineer's core. Lumineer's core, exactly. Doesn't it
2: have a specific, like, harmonic position within the... Scale that is yeah. being used.
1: She describes it as like a repeating, alternating note melody using A's and O's. So it basically like has the same kind of chord progression in a way that like is going to be something that people are going to be able to understand and know what it means across the whole canon of songs of the summer. Kind of like is this weird echo?
2: Can um, someone sing an example of that?
3: Well, I mean, it's like the chorus of every Japan song. I feel like the oh, oh <laughs> like that sort of thing. <laughs> you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think that's the idea. It's like you can sing along before you know the words to it. I think that's like what she's hinting at there. Yeah, totally. Last of all, the timing is really
1: important because, you know, you don't want to drop a song of the summer, like right in the middle of summer. You want it to kind of like have some time to percolate and get into people's minds. And so then when summer comes around, they actually know to put that song on in the Uber or play it at the festival or what have you. So a lot of songs that dominate the season typically come out in march april or early may so they've had time to like pick up some steam in the warm spring months and then really kick into high gear when summer comes around a few examples of when previous calvin harris songs of the summer have come out is like i need your love came out in april 2013 where have you been came out in 2012 and this year his really big Song of the Summer contestants are Slide with Frank Ocean which came out, and Migos which came out in February, and Heatstroke with Young Thug and Ariana Grande which came out in March. And he's got an upcoming mixtape called Funk Wave Bounces Volume 1 that he is basically positioning to be all Songs of the Summer contestants. Going to be a lot of big vocalists and a lot of like warm grooves.
2: (laughs) What do you guys think is going to be the Song of the Summer?
1: I think that there's actually not a Bad chance that that new Selena Gomez song that kind of samples the Talking Heads, "Bad Liar." I think that song could be a, a real sleeper hit. You know, when it initially came out, it like hasn't blown up on the charts or anything, but it's really catchy, and I could see it like getting a lot of radio play.
3: And the rare pop song that can get a Pitchfork Best New Track. Yes. For me, I think the thing that like unites all of those characteristics that you listed off, however like facetious they are, is that a song of the summer is easy, there's not much that challenges you in the vocal run that you suggested, or a 4-4 beat, or these very basic themes. It's like something that comes on when you're on a roof at a bar drinking, and you don't know what it is, but you aren't mad at it. It just kind of like happens to you, and that happens on the radio for the whole summer. And I think that there is one song for me that has already become that, because I had been hearing this kind of slowly bubbling EDM song on the radio a ton for like the past two months and had no idea what it was and just kept hearing it and kept hearing it. It had a male rapper on it and a very simple chorus that basically just says, I love you. And then discovered recently that it is an Axwell and Grosso song called I Love You featuring Kid Ink. Uh, that came out in February, so I think that the timing's right, and it just feels like it's like soaring further and further up the charts. I don't know if it's actually in the Billboard Hot 100, so maybe it's like a big sleeper
0: pick. Wait, is it the really annoying one that goes like "I love you"? No. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure if songs. I'm <laughs> not sure if I, so sure it if I recognize
3: it <laughs> based on the, on the Im- impression there, okay. um, but it is kind of annoying, but not annoying enough that it, y- your ear would even prick up each time you hear it. It's just something that like. I don't know, if I'm getting a sandwich for lunch in in the bodega, and there's just this, like, wash of keyboards, and I'm like, oh, this is kind of nice, and then forget about it for the rest of the day. And I think that that's what truly makes a song of the summer. And I think what, The Chainsmokers Closer was a hit during the summer months last year, and I think that that's the same kind of phenomenon, where it's... And I don't even mean that it's deliberately forgettable in a negative way. I think that that can be a positive quality of a song. But it's something that just kind of, like, washes off of you (laughs) like a a dip in the ocean.
1: Yeah, I I mean, I think it's all about this, like, idea of, like, any, like, big summer event is going to need to appeal to so many different kinds of people. Whether we're just talking about, like, a beach, barbecue, or, like, an official festival. Like, you're going to have a lot of different people there. And the best songs of the summer take they're always going to combine a little bit of multiple genres. Like you're never going to have a straight up EDM song or a straight up R&B song, really B song of the summer. But the, these artists and these producers are becoming incredibly effective at this, like kind of genre cross pollination, where you take a little bit of one thing, and a little bit of some, something else, so that you know nobody's going to feel like particularly like harsh or excluded by any particular song of the summer.
0: And also, maybe perhaps a bit cynically, I think that it's a marketing strategy to appeal to global markets. Spotify playlists and all of that have allowed like pop songs to be disseminated across different countries really quickly and pop stars are realizing that like foreign markets are really important and um, I think that you've seen a rise in collaborations between pop stars and like you know like a really big like Spanish singer or like um, you know a South African house DJ for example which kind of brings me to my song of the summer pick um, I, I think it's gonna be a song by Drake when I was in Cuba. Always a strong contender. Yeah, when I was in Cuba, he was the one pop star that I heard everywhere. He beat out every other pop star by, like, a mile. And, you know, if you can make it into a country with no internet, um, that means that you're really fucking big.
2: Finally today, I wanted to talk about A really cool piece that Nikki Ciano, the legendary New York DJ, wrote for us last week, which was about how, contrary to the club's very glamorous reputation, the first month of the club actually was not exactly smooth sailing. Yeah. So Nicky
0: Siano is like a great character. Um, He was, you know, a resident DJ at Studio 54. He sort of like talks about going to the club for the first time a couple days before it opened and how, you know, there were workers running everywhere. The carpets weren't installed yet. There was sawdust everywhere. And how it didn't look like it was ready to go. And then he went to the opening night and it was fabulous. There were like crowds outside. Everyone was like, you know, pissed off that they couldn't get in and like holding up the invitations, which at the time were really groundbreaking, he said, because the invitations for the Studio 54 opening night came on like a colorful, creative printed poster while everyone else was sending out Xerox photocopies. And he sort of like makes an aside saying that, you know, that's one of the things that Studio. 54 really established, which is creative promotion and and these invitations, which, of course, like later on in like the early 80s, clubs like Area picked up and brought into a totally different level. Um, but yeah, so he, so Nicky Siano shows up in his you know furucci jeans and matching silk shirt, and he walks into the club and he says the second thing that Studio 54 did that was amazing was really really choreographed performances where there was this iconic lighting man named Robert De Silva, and he would choreograph the confetti blast along with like the music drop along with the disco ball spin and like curtains opening and it was just like a really theatrical show. And that was new in nightlife. People didn't really have that sort of level of production yet. But the next day, Nikki says, the club was almost empty. And it was because the opening night was on a weekday. So the next day was also a weekday. And people just weren't used to going out on weekdays anymore. You know, there were clubs like Limelight or The Hollywood that were like three to 400 people. And those would sometimes fill up on weekdays. But Studio 54 was huge. It was like 2,000 people. So even if you do have three or 400 people still looks totally empty and he said like as a resident DJ it was really obvious the lack of business and they would often close as early as 2am with less than 200 people in the club and when celebrities came on weekdays they would like be shepherded downstairs into this lounge so that they could like drink and do drugs without feeling like they were in an empty club but he said that you know the third thing that Studio 54 did that was revolutionary is bringing people out on weekdays to these sort of like spectacles And they really changed the culture of nightlife from like a weekend only partying scene to an every single day partying scene in the
2: 80s. I think I remember accounts from a piece that I did like many years ago from regulars at Studio 54. And it became a thing to have these like really intensive personal schedules involving your day job where you would like get off work, go home, sleep for a certain amount of time, and then go out. I mean, that sounds like my schedule. (laughs) Sounds a little bit like your schedule, Michelle. (laughs) It's basically like true true nightlife to be able to create an environment where people start going out all night while juggling the intensity of, like, making a living in New York.
0: Right. And one thing that Nikki said was, you know, uh, Ian Schrager and Steve Rubell, the co-owners of Studio 54, they were never worried about the club not being successful. They were worried about how they would pull it together, but they always from the beginning had confidence that they would be able to, um, you know, bring in people eventually you know it eventually worked because they threw Bianca Jagger's birthday party there a month in and invited like 23 of the top reporters from around the world and the photo of her walking you know riding a white horse into the room with like Mick Jagger and all these celebrities there helped to promote the club and give it like instantaneous success so as Nikki Siano put it they saw millions of dollars in that sawdust
2: what was interesting in the book Love Saves the Day which I've talked about a lot in this podcast was this distinct Um, the author made Between the Loft and Studio 54 where Studio 54 sort of borrowed a lot of the basic premise of the loft and sometimes would play even similar music or to a degree but the one was all about secrecy and like covertness mm-hmm. and kind of privacy and then Studio 54's major innovation was this idea of like externally broadcasting the contents of the party which you naturally would do because you have all of these celebrities there and journalists but it's almost like this like instagrammable it, they pioneered totally. before Instagram this Instagrammable paradigm of raving.
0: I mean, I think you can see a direct line between like Studio 54 and the meatpacking district and the loft. And, you know, I mean, the loft still exists today, but parties like, I don't know, Sublimate or sure. Mr. Uh, Mr. Sunday, um, parties that celebrate this sort of like, I don't know, <laughs> underground Hippie. It's um, about the
3: music, man.
0: <laughs> sort of thing.
3: Okay. But I do want to see more clubs that would allow a horse indoors. I, I, that's the kind of party <laughs> I want to go
2: to. <sighs> You've been listening to The Thump Podcast, a production of Vice Media and Thump. I wanted to shout out Tim Barnes, who engineers and edits The Thump Podcast. You can find him on Twitter at TimBarnes451. I'd also like to shout out Lorna Doon, real name Lorna Creer, who made the music for this podcast. You can hear her music at LornaDoon.Bandcamp.com. If you'd like to read some of the stories we've been talking about, please log on to our website, thump.vice.com. You can also follow us on social media over at twitter.com slash thumpthump or facebook.com slash thumpthump. Michelle, Colin, Ezra, where can people follow your stories? Um, Twitter, Michelle L-H-O-O-Q. I'm
3: on Twitter at outa. I'm
1: on Twitter at Ezra underscore Mark.
2: Thanks, guys. Uh, You can follow me at adhocemily on Twitter. If you like what you've heard, please rate and subscribe on iTunes. Ratings help, but word of mouth is the only way we really get this out there. Have a good day.